Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is We Didn't Start the Fire, covering anaesthesia for burn surgery with special guest Dr. Karsoon Lim. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Karsoon Lim is a consultant anaesthetist at the Concord Hospital in Sydney and a senior lecturer with the University of Sydney Medical School after obtaining his FANSCA in 2006. Dr. Lim's anaesthetic interests include airway management, regional anaesthesia, simulation and education, and he teaches at the New South Wales ANSCA Part 1 and Part 2 courses. He thinks the best thing he's done in his career is to work three days a week after the birth of his first child 10 years ago as it's provided a great parenthood and life-work balance. Kasun, thank you so much for joining us on Deep Breaths. Oh, thank you very much, Kate. Excellent. So, Kasun, depending on where trainees are located and the hospitals they rotate through, it's possible that they may reach their Part 2 exam with little or no experience in anaesthesia for moderate to severe burns. But this doesn't mean that anaesthesia for burns isn't assessed or that it isn't important because, let's face it, patients with burns may well present anywhere. So, how do these patients typically present? Is there even a typical burns patient? So, there's a wide spectrum of people who get burnt But if there was anything that was common would be the three words male, intoxicated and campfire. (laughs) uh, We see a wide spectrum of disease. Most recently, we had the White Island volcano victims, the massive bushfires um, that affected all the east coast of Australia over the last summer. Mm. So they really stick out in our minds. But then house fires, car accidents, uh, kitchen explosions, LPG gas barbecue incidents, um, people who self-harm, diabetics with peripheral neuropathies who don't know they've got peripheral neuropathies and then get contact burns from heaters or even standing on hot concrete, and people who self-immolate. There's a a wide spectrum of people who get burnt. Mm, Yeah. Okay, so say you're working at a moderate-sized peripheral hospital when a patient with severe burns arrives at the ED. So how do we assess the burn itself? So the two key things are size and depth, because uh, that'll tell you what you need to do for the patient and how sick the patient is going to get. Yeah. So firstly, size size is simple. We simply use the rule of nines. Um, so 9% for each arm, 9% for the head and neck, 18% for the front of your torso, 18% for the back of your torso, and 18% for each leg, mm. leaving 1% for the perineum. There are much more complex charts out there, but all our burn surgeons just use the rule of nines. Mm -hmm. If you have a really patchy burn, then the size of the patient's palm uh, works out to be about 1%. Um, So if you little bits here and there, you can use that as a rough estimate. So size is simple. Slightly more complex is depth. Mm -hmm. Moved away from first degree, second degree, third degree terminology and rather talk about superficial 
partial thickness and full thickness burns. Mm. So a superficial burn involves only the epidermis. And the classic example is sunburn. We've all probably had it. It's hot, it's red, it's itchy. Uh, it only involves the epidermis uh, and it will heal by itself. And we don't count superficial burns when you're calculating total body surface area affected. Mm. Okay. At the other extreme, probably the obvious burn is a full thickness burn. So this burn has gone all the way through the dermis into the subcutaneous tissue. So these burns are waxy, leathery, insensate, non-expansile. Um, it's called eschar. There is no capillary refill. It It's cooked coagulated tissue. Um, it can't, the protein is denatured. There's no chance of it healing. So that's the thickness burn. But then when you have a burn that involves the dermis, you have a partial thickness burn. Mm. And this is the most complex area and hardest to figure out what depth you've got. Mm. But on general principles, a, a superficial dermal burn, uh, you, the characteristic of this is that you get a blister. So if you have fluid building up under the epithelium that slips it off, if you do roof that, you're, that's a superficial dermal burn. They mm. usually heal by themselves. And most of us probably would have had that as well. Then a deep dermal burn that's gone through to deeper layers of the dermis um, has a very characteristic lobster red or cherry red appearance. So these are much deeper burns. They may or may not heal and they often need grafting. Mm. Uh, capillary refill for these deep dermal burns may or may not be absent. If the capillary refill is present, that's a good sign, suggesting that it will heal and it may or may not heal. And between the superficial and deep, you have an intermediate layer, which has characteristics of both. And that's the hardest layer to figure out whether it's going to heal or whether mm. it'll need grafting. Or. Mm, that's really complex. Now, it's likely that the main reason that we as anaesthetists get get called to the emergency de uh, department to assist with a burns patient is to assess the airway. So how do we decide whether the patient needs to be intubated? Yeah, so, so this is complex and there's no easy answer to that. And there's lots of factors to consider. So it's important to realise that if you have a burn that involves more than about 25% body surface area, that patient will develop a massive systemic inflammatory response, not only at the site of the burn, but systemically, and it's including the airway. And that will occur even in the absence of fluid resuscitation, but when you add fluid resuscitation on top of it, the likelihood of significant edema and upper airway obstruction becomes uh, very significant. Mm -hmm. So even if they're not burnt around the airway, if they've got a very large burn, you should think about intubating them. Mm. Other things to think about is that you, when you first see them, you've got the best chance at intubation before all this swelling develops. Mm, that's a good point. The history is useful a little. So it's actually very rare to get an airway burn that involves your lower airway. So our upper airway is actually a very efficient heat exchanger. Normally it warms and humidifies inspired gases but it's also very effective at removing heat from inspired gases as well. Mm. So if you've actually breathed enough, enough hot gases to burn your lower airway, it suggests a really severe burn or you've been entrapped in a house fire or, or in a vehicle or something like that. Mm -hmm. So history of an entrapment would probably err you on the side of intubating. Other things, the clinical examination is unreliable. We all know the signs. You look and listen, you know, singed nasal hairs, blistering inside the mouth, listening for stride or changes in voice quality, they're all, they all have low positive and negative predictive values. Mm. Um, so there are clear guidelines out there, but I think our practice in Australia particularly differs from that from Europe 
in Europe, they are very much into holding off intubation and performing serial nasendoscopies. Mm-hmm. But we don't have those resources to do that. And we have really, really large transfer distances to consider mm-hmm. when you're trying to get these patients to a major burn centre. So when you think about all these things, it's probably simplest that if you think that the patient should be intubated, err on the side of caution and intubate them early uh, because you've got the best conditions. Mm-hmm. We definitely get patients who are intubated and retrieved to our hospital. And in hindsight, maybe they didn't need to be intubated, but it's no big deal. They just get extubated uh, when they arrive in ICU or soon after arrival in ICU and no one criticises the decision to intubate. Yeah, mm. that's fair enough. And that's a really, I think, important point for people to take home as well is that, you you know, if you do make that decision, you will never be criticised for it. So fair enough. I think also your point about the airway swelling is interesting uh, or just general swelling because mm. I don't know if it's similar practice, but the burn surgeons in our hospital uh, will wire the endotracheal tube to the teeth. Mm. And that's because if you try to take it to the lips and the lips and the face swell, it pushes the endotracheal tube out. Yeah. And that just shows how, you know, like when you watch them swell mm. over the next couple of days, you realise how severe that systemic response can be. Mm. I, I guess an, another thing to think about is uh, staff safety. Yeah. So sometimes you get burnt. Uh, we get a lot of businessmen who have their drug lab explode. Oh, no. And <laughs> they're sometimes not the most savoury customers. And they've just had millions of dollars of crystal meth blow up. They have, if they're in severe pain, mm. they have activated their flight or fight response. A lot of our other patients burn themselves under the influence of drugs or they're psychotic. And staff safety and managing these patients safely is an important thing to consider as well, both in the ED and also for the transfer. So that's another thing to also, if you want to use sucks acutely, uh, that's completely fine. The, the hyperkalemic response to sucks only really develops probably the earliest case report I could find was actually nine days post major burn. So oh, wow. definitely within the first within the first 24 hours, it is definitely safe to use sucks if you think that's the most appropriate muscle relaxant to use. That's really good to know. Mm. So what about intravenous fluids? I know learning the Parkland formula was one of the highlights of the Part 2 exam. <laughs> Are we still using that? So uh, we've moved away from the Parkland formula to the modified Parkland formula. So the Parkland formula no doubt has been life-saving. Patients extravasate fluid for multiple reasons. A, the systemic response creates leaky capillaries, but also there's actual uh, protein destruction within the burn itself, and that increases tissue oncotic pressure that actually pulls fluid through those leaky capillaries even more than you'd expect. Mm. So these patients rapidly become hypovolemic and go into renal failure and and shock. Mm. So the Parkland formula was formula grains per kilo, per percent body surface area uh, and that gives you your first 24 hours fluid requirement mm. and that's with hearts. Mm. The idea is that you get 50% of that within the first eight hours from the time of the burn and the second 50% over the subsequent 16 hours. Mm. So one of the implications is that if you have a delayed retrieval and the patient gets to you six hours post-burn, you've only got two hours to get that first 50% in and mm. that could be a really, really large volume of fluid mm. so we've moved away from that to the modified parkland which is three mils per kilo um, because there's an increasing recognition that patients probably get too much and if you read the literature they, they call this fluid creep mm. and there are consequences of giving someone way too much crystalloid um, in terms of tissue edema poor wound healing poor graft take abdominal compartment syndrome and other compartment syndromes as well mm. have been reported 
So EMSB, the Early Management of Severe Burns uh, course that is run through Australasia, um, recommends three milligrams per kilo. Mm. But there are certain times you may think of using four milligrams per kilo still, and that's if you have an inflational injury, if there's associated trauma, yeah. um, or if electrical injury where the tissue destruction may be greater than the body surface area burnt, mm -hmm. and we can talk about that in play. Now, are there any other considerations when approaching these sorts of patients in the ED department? I guess, well, we've just talked about electrical burns. That's mm. an important thing because uh, workplace electrocutions happen not infrequently. Um, mm. So you have the characteristic entry and exit points. And so the actual skin body surface area burnt may actually be quite small. Mm. But as the electricity travels through your body, it uh, gets conducted and the tissues with the highest resistance to electric electricity heat up the most. Mm. So, and that's usually bone. So bone heats up the most and mm -hmm. the adjacent deep muscle that's attached to the bone can actually cook. That you can get rhabdomyolysis and swelling and you these patients can develop compartment syndromes and they may need fasciotomies to release those tight compartments. Mm. Uh, rhabdomyolysis, you get the, the consequences. So hyperkalemia, um, myoglobin clogging the, the kidneys and acute renal failure. Mm. So these patients may need significantly more fluid than you'd think. Goodness. Mm. Now, when we're in the ED department, are there any, um, are there any, is there anything we should be thinking about in terms of drugs that we should give these patients? So antibiotics, for example. So antibiotics are not recommended. So the burn has been heat sterilised, essentially. Um, and multi-resistant organisms become a real problem in burns units. So the recommendation is not to give antibiotics uh, acutely. It's, it's just not indicated. It might be worth checking their tetanus status and giving tetanus uh, vaccinations, but definitely not antibiotics. Uh, look, these patients are going to have severe pain and it's best just to keep it simple. So we would just suggest morphine and ketamine in combination. Yeah. Uh, is simple and effective and familiar. Yeah, that's a good point. So is there anything specific we should watch out for in terms of the burn pattern? So, for example, a circumferential full thickness burn? So the concern with circumferential full thickness burns is whether you will need to perform an escarotomy. The escar, the elastin has been coagulated. It's no longer expansile. So you have this rigid circumferential bark around the patient's limbs. Mm -hmm. And once you start getting from the fluid resus and the systemic inflammatory response, um, there is a risk of... Uh, loss of circulation to the, the distal extremities. So with limb injuries, it's really important to elevate the limbs if you can um, and really keep a close eye on peripheral circulation, peripheral capillary refill, uh, your SATS probe trace and so on, and consider whether you need to do an escarotomy. Mm -hmm. If you have a circumferential burn of your torso, that can actually limit respiration. Um, which you may pick with high airway pressures uh, as an early sign. And sometimes patients require escarotomies of their chest and also escarotomies across the abdomen, which may also lead to a decreased um, ability for diaphragm to descend if you've got a very tight abdomen and it may also lead to acute renal failure. Mm. So yeah, you need to have a, a high index of suspicion for each of these things. Mm. Yeah. Now, Kasun, I know you, you spoke previously about electrical burns and how they're kind of different in terms of the pattern of the injury and the tissues that are involved. Um, what happens if that electrical burn potentially involves the heart? What do we, what happens there? So this, this is anecdotal, but we had a man 
burn himself. He was trying to cut through wires at a construction site at another hospital and he cut through about 15,000 volts. He blacked out the and managed to arc from one limb to the other. Uh, He was a young, otherwise well male and we were going to take him to theatre but the intensives performed an echo on arrival and his ejection fraction was 20%. uh, With a normal ECG and no rise in troponins and we could not explain this. So we delayed surgery and he got daily echoes and it picked up. When once it got back up to 40% two days later, we were happy to proceed with surgery. So we don't have a great explanation for this, but it was something really unusual that we hadn't seen before. So it might be worth considering echoing these patients to make sure that everything is contracting normally after they've had a massive mm. electrical current mm. that's passed across their chest. Mm. Oh, right. That's amazing. Well, Carson, uh, we've already kind of come to the end of one episode's worth of content and we still have so much to talk about. We're coming back with a case and actually conducting the anesthesia. Uh, so do you mind joining us for a second episode? Oh, that'd be a pleasure. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Carson, on uh, this episode one of We Didn't Start the Fire. Uh, as always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We actually contacted Carson through a recommendation and one of our listeners. So if you want to be an interviewee or you know someone that who would be great, please get in touch. Now, you can find us anywhere that you find podcasts, but certainly our most popular platforms are Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.